Okay, take your Bibles this morning and turn to Hebrews chapter 12. And I'd like to thank Dave for playing uh, this morning. Him and his wife, Sherry, uh, are with us. And they came here just as young college students. And uh, now he is ministering with uh, Bob Glenn, Pastor Glenn, in Minnesota. And uh, just God's doing a great work there with with them and their staff. And actually, Bob is going to be with us next week preaching. And so you'll they'll want to be here. Bob is is getting to be well known, and um, so. But I, I always want to try, try to keep him humble, and uh, you know. But we thank you guys for coming, and and uh, you're just always a blessing. And, and thank that we have like a long umbilical cord from here to Minnesota, from our church. And I just praise the Lord that they're doing great. And God's doing a work out there, and uh, just a blessing. And I, I just uh, praise God for that. All right, Hebrews chapter 12. We're looking this morning at a practical section, actually. The title I gave my message was Christian Life Should Maintain a Steady and Persistent Exertion. I want to add to that, we must do that together. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is getting at in this part of the Word of God, is to do the Christian life together never alone it's always with the body we can't do it alone it's it's impossible to do alone and so scripture really has been laying out before us the christian life has been described as a race the nature of the race is that you are in it when you become a believer you're in it and you're to give all your effort to cross the finish line but get this it is not a race to determine how fast you can run. Neither is, 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 is it a race to compete with others, but it is a race to determine success or failure in reaching the goal. And the point of the race is not the one who's first, but the point of the race is the one who finishes. And all with endurance finish all with faith in the lord every day consistently finish so you see we need to think of the christian life as a foot race it's 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 more like a cross-country race as i've mentioned already maybe more than any other kind of race because in a cross-country race you have your ditches and you have your rough fields you have your hills and you have your steep declines, you have your briars, and you have your protruding roots, you have your obstacles of all kinds, and that is a picture of the Christian race. But the race also can be described as a marathon race. Because the Christian life is really a long-distance run. It's not a sprint. It's a long-distance run. It takes endurance, it takes grit. It takes toughness to finish well. But think of it like this. You're running, and you have been maintaining a good, steady pace. Then all of a sudden, your legs start tightening up. If you've done any running, your breathing becomes shallow and fast. Your joints begin to ache. By the pounding of each step on your path, your feet begin to blister. Cramps begin to pop up in various places. Your throat begins to become dry. And you start feeling queasy and lightheaded. Your body starts telling your mind, it's time to drop out. It's time to quit. It's time to throw in the towel. It's time to sit on the bench. But surprisingly, your brethren running with you and the great cloud of witnesses that have gone before you begin to prod you on to finish the race. And suddenly the Spirit of God gives you the strength to keep moving, looking forward to the goal, fixing your eyes on Jesus, and you begin to think, I must finish. 
I must finish. No matter how hard it gets, no matter what happens, I must finish. So then the purpose of the race is just to finish the course, but to finish the course well. Finish this long-distance race despite hardships, exhaustion, and pain. That's where he's getting at here. That's what he's been talking about, that the Christian life is no easy thing. Part of running the race well is removing those things which will slow you down and hinder you from making good progress. But also, along the way, you learn some really important things so you can finish well. And you usually learn those things through the school of discipline. When the Heavenly Father steps in and He begins to teach you very extremely important things, and those things don't usually come when things are going all right and things are normal. It usually comes when there's trouble. And you begin to realize from Scripture, as I mentioned last time, that God steps in and He disciplines you. He sends trouble to your life. He sends difficulties and hardships into your life that cause exhaustion and cause pain but it's all for your good it's all for his glory it's all to mature you it's all to make you a stronger runner to finish the race so today i want you to take special note and notice various things that we will need to consider and apply for finishing the race well because the race is also about helping others. It's about helping others around us to finish well also. This means we must all together overcome the curse of American individualism. We are far too individualistic in America, and we need to stop that. <laughs> Because it's not about you, it's about us. It's not about you and us, it's about the glory of God together as we finish the race. So that means we must all together overcome. That's what we must do. And so I want you to consider with me three responsibilities that should be actively engaged in by all of us. And the first one is found in verse number 12 and 13. But before I look there, let's have a word of prayer. Father, this morning we come before you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we humble ourselves before you, Lord. For there is no God like you. There is no other one to be worshipped. You are the only God. And the only way we can come to the Father is through Christ our Savior. And we thank you for the truth that you've revealed to us in Scripture. This morning, Lord, make us listeners that want to understand your word and put it into practice. And Lord, each one of us here cause us to run well, cause us to finish. For it's only by your strength that we can and the strength that you've given to the body of believers. And Lord, let us take our responsibilities serious, put them into practice, so we can all be moving forward to the goal line, knowing, Lord, we have eternal benefits waiting for us. And those benefits are even available to us now. We praise you, Lord, for so great a salvation you've given to the saints. And I pray, Lord, that we would honor you by adorning the gospel with our life. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So here's the first responsibility. We are all, we are all responsible to take care of the weak members of the church body. Look at verse number 12, where it says this, Therefore strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble. Let me just stop there. So to strengthen the weak the exhausted and the discouraged. That means this, this, the race we're in may make us weakened, may bring us to the place where we are exhausted and may bring us to the place where we even get discouraged. But see, the point is 
that when the body is working and taking on the responsibility, we're not going to let that happen by the power of the Spirit. That our passage gives us a picture of a runner who has drooping hands and weak, wobbly knees, and they are on their way to almost becoming paralyzed. You ever feel that way in the Christian walk? You ever feel like that? That you just feel like you can't go another step? That life's too heavy? That the circumstances and the pressure is too great? The responsibilities are too great? And you begin to feel that weight. And so for the Christian runner, of course, that could mean you have encountered hard times, maybe even persecutions for the gospel, or living a holy life, or even the very discipline that comes from God that these can cause you to grow weary and disheartened. And this is precisely the place where the body of believers comes into play. Now, how do you think You are to deal with those who have been weakened in the race. Now, number one, you have to take notice that they are weakened. Because the Bible is really saying, listen, there's strong ones and there's weak ones. Sometimes the weak ones become the strong ones because they learn the lesson and vice versa. But you always have the strong and the weak in the church. So the strong are looking out for the weak. They're taking notice of it. But actually, in our text, we have a verbal exhortation that is given in scripture you don't tell them of course to get out of the race you may be surprised actually what it says here that the strong runners are to tell the weak runners in the form of a command literally to straighten up now you think that may be because in verse number 12 therefore strengthen the hands that word strengthen is the greek word that we get the word orthopedic from And it means to set up, to make erect, to make erect drooping hands and relaxed knees. And it gives the sense to make upright or straight. We are to help each other tough out the race by God's good grace. And how are we to do that? By really verbal commands you know we're running alongside somebody you can't tell them to stop get on get off get out of the race but you're helping them you're encouraging them those on the sidelines are encouraging when you watch the marathon that's what you have you have a bunch of people cheering people on you can make it you can keep going in fact this is an allusion to an old testament passage found in isaiah 35 and verse 3 and 4 which really is gives It's usually given when there is an indication of a spiritual slowdown amongst God's people. And so Isaiah sometimes has these exhortations, and if you like to turn there, it says simply this in verse number 3 of Isaiah 35, encourage the exhausted and strengthen the feeble. Verse 3, verse 4, say to those with anxious heart, take courage. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, and the recompense of God will come, but he will save you. See, in other words, we're to remind them to keep going. We're to remind them, listen, God's discipline is for your good. It's for your strength. We're to remind them by our words and of also by our life. And it's, it's not all that we're, we're to do. The body of believers also are to look at the weak and they're to do something else in verse number 13 of Hebrews. They're to straighten the path for the disabled. For those who are weak, we need to make sure the path is clear where it says in verse 13, and make straight paths for your feet. So the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint but rather healed in other words the word path actually means literally wheels that make tracks again he is quoting from and alluding to isaiah 35 and verse 8 where he says this that the highway shall be there and it shall be called the way of holiness the unclean shall not pass over it 
It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. In other words, that we are as the church, as believers, to walk in such a consistent manner in following the Lord that our path becomes firm and so well trodden that it leaves grooves in the path that even if a fool is following you, they can't stumble or go astray because the groove keeps them where they ought to go. So see, that's what we're to do. And we're to do that for those who are weaker. In other words, do everything you can to make the race easier so that they will not turn aside from running the race and so their limbs will not ultimately be put out of joint but become and become disabled. But like this text says, so the goal is this, that they would be healed, that they would get strong enough in the race to run on their own and then become the one who begins to encourage others in the race. And of course, this goal is to be healed, that is the body of believers will come alongside and help them get stronger and finish the race. And the strong must keep the weak on the straight path and on the right road. And again, he's making allusions to the Old Testament again, where in Proverbs it tells us, let your eyes look directly ahead of you. Let your gaze be fixed straight in front of you. Watch the path of your feet and all the ways will be established. Do not turn to the right nor to the left turn your foot from evil in other words make straight tracks for their feet with your feet so they know where they would be going and so they don't stray off to the right and to the left of course he's getting somewhere uh, with this that that is very significant in other words that they're not going to drop out of the race showing that they were never believers in the first place. So the strong must hold up the drooping hands and the wobbly knees of the weak by their verbal exhortations, by their prayers, by their acts of mercy, by their daily example. And it could be, as John Owen suggested, that the lame are those who are retaining, remember this is a Jew, basically a Jewish audience, that they're retaining Jewish ceremonies and worship alongside the teaching of the gospel. And so they're looking to both still. They're maybe going back and forth, and yet this body posture, this running posture, is not foreign to the book of Hebrews. All over the place, it's been telling us, listen, when you're, when you're running the race, when you're living the Christian life, you ought to do it together. If I just think of Hebrews 3.13, it says, but encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be disheartened by the deceitfulness of sin. There's the encouragement of the body. Then in Hebrews 6, 11 and 12, it says, and we desire that each one of you should show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end so that you will not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And then, again in Hebrews 10, another type of exhortation given to the believers in running this race. And what it's a simple one, not forsaking our assembly together, right? But as a habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. These are just simple verbal encouragements that we give to those who are getting sluggish getting weak slowing down in the race maybe getting sidetracked their attention is going somewhere else maybe a trouble came in that was too heavy you come alongside of them and sometimes it's just verbal encouragement of course it's more than that but that's where it starts sometimes for me in my christian walk it just came somebody come up coming up to me saying i'm praying for you and i want to encourage you that God is using you and, and thank you for the gifts that God's given you and you're being faithful to them. You're being faithful uh, to live the Christian life and that encourages me. That's all. That's all you need. You can go a long time on that. And see, that's what we need because you know, I need you, you need me. And so 
Sometimes I'm going to be in the pits, sometimes I'm not, sometimes you're going to be in the pits, and we have to look at each other and notice our lives and be involved with each other's lives so we know those things so we can encourage one another, and sometimes it may be by way of admonition or even rebuke. Maybe someone gets caught in a sin, you've got to go tell them. You know that's not pleasing to the Lord. You know that's not what God wants you to do. And most of the time, somebody with a sense of the Spirit and who's a believer will say, you're right, that's all I needed. And you rescue them. But see, we've got to have our eyes out there. See, our, so it's the responsibility of all of us to look out for those who are weaker than us, who know less than us, who have only been Christians for a short period of time and don't know all the things that they are going to come in contact with and maybe never even heard a message on discipline or Wow, I thought the Christian life was going to be a cakewalk. I thought it was just going to be great. It was going to be a lot of fun. You know, I was never going to have any trouble. That God rescued me from all that, and they find out they had more trouble after becoming a believer than before a believer. See, we have to be careful that they know those things. See, the strong understand those things because they've learned them. The strong know, having been disciplined by the Lord maybe several times in your life up to that point, so you're watching out for the weaker, for the younger, for those who have, you know, their arms are starting to sag and their knees are starting to get wobbly and they're starting to look like they're going to drop out. Go get them. Go come alongside of them. See, that's our, all our responsibility. And so we have to take it seriously. Secondly, we all are, have a responsibility to pursue two community essentials along with that in verse number 14. And the first one is simply this. Pursue peace with all men. So we are called, of course, never peace at all costs. We are never going to have peace for the sake of giving up essential doctrines or laying aside truth. Never there. All right? It's always, of course, on the non-essential things, and it always, always is for the sake of the body because people are going to come into the church with different opinions, with different ways of thinking, with different backgrounds, with different baggage, and so therefore we have to learn how to pursue peace with all men, and peace not simply, remember, is not simply freedom from trouble. That's not what peace is. Peace is first always Godward, that the, this peace is that which was already won uh, through the sacrifice and death of Jesus Christ. And so because we are at peace with God through Christ, we are to make every effort to, to maintain peace that has been given to us. And of course, peace means uh, everything which really makes a man, makes uh, pursues a man's highest good, a person's highest good. And, and for the Hebrew, uh, the highest good was that would, people would obey God. Obedience was the highest good. So, listen, I'm pursuing peace for the sake of people being obedient to the Word of God. So it's always first God Word. God, I'm at peace with God through the blood of Jesus Christ. Therefore, I am to have peace with men because now I have peace with God, and I can actually have peace with men because I have peace with God. And so there's peace in relationships, and this peace will not come automatically because we come with thoughts of the world in our mind, we come with remaining corruption, and the devil, of course, will always disrupt the life of any group of believers. He's always ready to cause dissension, to cause trouble in the body. And so therefore, that is why we ought to pursue peace uh, with great effort in the body and not allow things to fester where peace is hard to maintain. And of course, in, by the Spirit of God, we have been given the peace of God. We're to keep it in the bond of unity. So we are all to be contributing to that. And so... In fact, if a weak person uh, comes into a body to get healed or is in the body to be healed, it's really the strong, rich, corporate unity. That atmosphere uh, is the kind of atmosphere that brings healing and growth to people, that strengthens people. And so we all have to be watching out for that. 
every single one of us have that responsibility to watch out for that. But there's a second thing in this passage in verse 14. We're not only to pursue peace as a community essential, but we're to pursue holiness. It says, and sanctification. That's in the New American Standard in the English Standard Version and the King James we have, we are to pursue holiness. I like that better. Uh, so there's three things that is required for holiness and why we need it is the first is that holiness is required for our, required for our well-being. Remember, God's goal when he disciplines us is so in verse number uh, 10 of chapter 12 of Hebrews, so that we may share in his what? Holiness. So this is the goal. He does correct us. He does drive out the sin that is still in us. But only in order that we may be more truly the children that God wants us to be. And be sure of this. God will have you to be holy. You better mark that down. That God has not called us to uncleanness or impurity. But as the Apostle Paul told us already in 1 Thessalonians, for God has not called us to impurity, but to holiness. And holy means to be different. It means to be set apart to God. That's what it means. And it's, it's a special word in Hebrews directly connected with the character of God. That, of course, God is holy. And you've got to mark it down. Only holy people are going to want to be in the presence of a holy God. Because wickedness just can't survive in the presence of purity of a holy God. You better mark that down. So God's nature demands holiness in the Christian life. So we are called to and must earnestly strive for, of course here meaning personal and practical holiness of life. We have been made holy before God. But now we are to live out that holiness, and that means believers are to be set apart from evil and separated to God, consecrated, and entirely given up to His service. And that is required. A second thing that is required for our holiness is effective service. We are going to be disciplined by God, so we we, sh we turn out to be what God wants us to be in holiness. But secondly, to be effective in service, you have to be living a holy life. It was 2 Timothy that Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 21, Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honor set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So, see, holiness... Uh, is required and necessary for our well-being, for our effective service, but it's necessary for something else. And really, specifically, in Hebrews here, it talks about verse number 14. It's, it's necessary for the assurance of our salvation. In fact, the only safe evidence that we are in Christ is a holy life. If you know nothing of holiness, you shouldn't flatter yourself that you're a Christian. See, the bottom line is, it is not those who profess to know Christ who will enter into heaven, but those whose lives are holy. In fact, in Hebrews, it says very clearly here in verse number 14 that without sanctification, all right, that without it, no one will see the Lord. You can't see the Lord without holiness. You can't come into the presence of God without holiness. So, see, strive for peace with everyone, it says in Hebrews 12, 14, and for the holiness with, with, without which no one will see the Lord. In fact, Paul again says in Ephesians, just as he chose us, that great passage of Scripture, in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. See, when we, when we became Christians, we were not only called to salvation, 
We were called to holiness. That's a package. Uh, so therefore, we're to be set apart as Christians and are to reflect really attitudes and behaviors consistent with our new relationship with God in Christ. In other words, Hebrews is telling us, keep pursuing a life that is more and more set apart to God, that is, reflects more and more being like Christ, living in the Spirit and not living in the flesh, living according to the Word of God and not the mindset of the world, living as God in a way that pleases God and not in a way that just pleases you and other people. See, so therefore the Christian community should be living, really a living example of harm, harmony and holiness. That's our responsibility. We're, we're to live that way before the world. But there is a third responsibility uh, to watch out for the spiritual well-being of the brethren in verse 15 through 17. And in this section of Scripture, really, we're giving three, given three objective clauses that tell us, give us warning against various evils that could ruin our faith if, if they were over, we, we could not overcome them. And here's the first one in verse number 15. It says, see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. Here's the first war warning. And it, that warning, of course, is given to the, to the body of believers. Watch out, see to it, that no one comes short of the glory of God. See, we begin this life of faith by God's saving grace, and only by His grace can we continue. So again, it could be legalism has come in to a certain extent, and people are no longer walking in grace but walking by way of works by way of, of, of establishing the righteousness before God uh, and of course the author is also concerned that none who are running in the race fall behind none turn away from the prize that is set before them the danger here specifically is the danger of the threat of apostasy of throwing in the towel and from the Lord completely. The warning has been already given in Hebrews several times. Chapter 3 and verse number 12. In the beginning of the epistle, the writer of Hebrews says, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil and unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. There is the warning there. So he's calling the body to watch out for each other that there would not exist among you someone who is an unbeliever, who remains in unbelief, but someone, of course, that we can admonish and challenge with the gospel and, if possible, rescue them from their unbelief. That's a sad state of heart because the Bible says that unbelief really is evil. It's... It's evil because it tends to make the heart evil and the heart has a tendency in that condition to turn away from the living God as if it's not important. So they were in danger. They were in danger of turning away from the great and the awesome and the dreadful God who's able to punish and avenge their sin for all eternity. And, and apostasy, apostasy from... The profession of the gospel is in mind here. Dropping out of the race and rejecting him who warns from heaven. If you look in chapter 12, verse 25, when I, when I get to that passage there, it says, See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if those do not escape when they refused him who warned them on the earth, much less will they escape who turn away from him, who warns them from heaven. In other words, when you have someone like Moses and someone like the apostles warning, and this writer in Hebrews warning us about not falling away, making sure that you're in the faith, he's saying if you refuse to listen to them, how will you escape if someone tells you from heaven? Of course, he's speaking specifically about Hebrews chapter 1 that Christ is the final revelation to us 
to rescue us from the condemnation of God. If you don't listen to Jesus Christ the Son and you turn away, how will you escape? There, there will be no escape. So our passage is really speaking of the absolute disastrous eventuality of cutting oneself off from the grace of God and dropping out. The person, instead of being carried forward by the grace of God, which we should do in the race, turns away from it and is being left behind, ultimately lost forever. That is what we are to be watching out for and being warned about in the body that somehow this could happen. Of course, we have seen it happen, and it does happen. It's those who maybe receive the word of God, and then when trouble and tribulation comes in, they're gone. They didn't think they signed up for that. And they don't fix their eyes on Jesus and his sacrifice and what he's done on their behalf. They just say, that, listen, I'm out of here, and they leave. It's, so not believing Moses... God's faithful apostle and mediator is one thing, but not believing the greater than Moses, the faithful apostle and high priest Jesus Christ, is ruinous. It is ruinous, and so here in Hebrews 12, it is really addressing the assembly of God's people in which he cautions them about the sin of apostasy. And apostasy is a sin. Once you have the full knowledge of the gospel of Jesus Christ and you cast that aside and walk away from it, there's, there's no return. That's what he is saying to here. Now, the Jews, of course, having the full knowledge of the Old Testament, now the full knowledge of the revelation of Jesus Christ and how all the prophets spoke about him, all the Psalms, all the law spoke about Christ, and they turn away from that, there, there's no salvation. So see, we're to watch out that no one falls short, that people understand the truth, they understand the gospel, so they can run the race and finish with everyone else. That's what we're to do as a body. We're to watch out for that. But we're also to watch out for something else in verse number 15. We're to watch out that no bitter root grows up. No bitter root. It says, again, see to it that no root of bitterness spring up, causes trouble, but it may, by it many be defiled. See, he is quoting, actually, uh, warning again. The second warning is from Deuteronomy 29 in verse number 18. And I'd like you to turn there if you have your Bibles. And I want you to notice something in Deuteronomy 29, verse number 18, because here it is, Moses, in Deuteronomy, meaning second law, given an explanation of the practical implications of the law, is warning the people that here's a possibility, here's the characteristic of an individual that you need to be warned about. And look what he says in verse 18 of Deuteronomy 29 so that there will not be among you a man or a woman or family or tribe, and here it is, whose heart turns away today from the Lord our God and goes and serve the God of those nations, that there will not be among you a root-bearing poisonous fruit and wormwood, in other words, bitterness. And so he's warning, and it's clear from Moses that this root is a person who is inclined toward apostasy and departing from God. This is the person uh, he, he's warning against, a person who really doesn't really uh, care about the truth or the gospel of Jesus Christ, but this is somebody truly, of course, was in the congregation of Israel, but also in the congregation of the church. Listen, he's saying, listen, watch out that no bitter root grows up. And of course, a root is usually something that's underneath the ground. You can't see it yet. But as soon as it sprouts up and you can see it, that's when you, you make sure that you root it out and though, so this bitter root refers to people in the church whose heart are turning away from the gospel and they turn either to some 
form of a works-based religious system, idolatry, of course, in this case, it could have been Judaism or some system that you have to work your way to salvation. You have to do something, and so therefore, setting aside the full implications of the cross of Jesus Christ, or that they, they move away to a sensual life. A life just living for themselves. And of course, that's a life of idolatry anyway. If somebody lives a life of sensuality, it is a life of idolatry. Like, like again, Paul uh, told uh, the Ephesians church, for this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. So clearly... In Scripture, we need to be aware and be watching out that this does not happen because the implication in verse number 15 is this. If this root of bitterness grows up and this attitude grows up and is allowed to get more exposure in the church, that it will, what, in verse number 15, it will actually defile many. And that's how destructive it is. The implication being that this one embittered, rebellious person in the midst of the church can actually have disastrous effects on the whole community of believers and that many be defiled, the Word of God tells us. So this person, having left the grace of God develops a certain quality of thinking that poisons and contaminates and causes others to think, think less and less of Christ and more and more of either another religious system that is way more, much easier to be involved with than being a Christian running in this race. And so therefore they have this attitude where Christ gets lowered and everything else gets hired and so therefore raised up. And so therefore, the Bible says these people are defiled. It, it uses the word defile, which really actually he's been using uh, references to that in Hebrews. It means here, refers to those who are made unclean. And remember, a person who is unclean, they are debarred from approaching God. They can't even approach God. And, and so this person becomes an influential person and so therefore causes other people to be unclean, unable to approach God. And for this person, they sink back into the filth of, of guilt and sin. They sink into bitterness that scorns Christ and his blood and his righteousness and his plan of salvation and even mocks it and so therefore, as a church, what do we do? We're to watch out that, listen, no one falls short of the grace of God and no root of bitterness grows up and takes root in the congregation because you know what happens if it does? It destroys everything. See, this is a warning, but that warning is given not just to the pastors and elders, to the whole congregation. Why? You're going to have conversations and notice things that I may never get a chance to notice. And you have to identify those things and take care of them. Why? For the sake of the whole body. Why? You don't want the body to get defiled by this person. And believe me, somebody who's always grumbling and complaining and demeaning uh, the Christian life and walk and the things of God and the Word of God, they are already giving indication that there's something wrong in their heart. And so therefore we have to come. Now they could be a weak believer, but... In this case, this is not a weak believer. This is an unbeliever who's in the congregation who understands the difference between these systems of religion and has outright rejected Christ and rejected the gospel of saving grace through faith in Jesus Christ and now is still amongst the believers because he has friends, he has family maybe, uh, people there that it's part of his life and has to be addressed, in other words. And it's the body that needs to address it. So therefore, such a root of bitterness, we're given an example right here in Scripture, is Esau. 
in the Old Testament, who was, the Bible says in verse 16, this Esau was an immoral and irreligious and godless man. So see to it that you do not take his example, in other words. And this third clause of warning in verse number 16 and 17 is to watch that these two appetites that are displayed from Esau's life do not hamstring the Christian race. And they often are the things that are very entangling. When you're talking about entangling sins, here are two entangling sins. And the first one is sensuous passions. In verse 16, it says, See to it that there be no immoral person. That's the first one. In fact, some people say, well, wait a minute. The Old Testament really doesn't say that Esau's immoral. So probably it's really talking about the second one, uh, not the first one, that he was more godless and ir- irreligious than immoral. But if you go back in your thinking and, and the history of Esau's life, that Esau's act of taking two foreign women as wives which actually the Bible records made the life of Isaac and Rebekah, his mom and dad, miserable because he went with these Canaanite women, which were just idolaters, polytheistic in, in there. And of course, he is an example. The Bible does refer to him as immoral in the sense that he did not regard the advice of his parents and actually they must have been regarded by uh, regarded his, uh, him as immoral and synonymous immoralities is synonymous, synonymous with immorality uh, fornication uh, amongst the people because they were to marry within their tribe within their nation not outside their nation and so he didn't listen to that so he was mentioned here in Hebrews this is the place it mentions of his character listen immorality is a very entangling sin when the emotions are engaged, relationships are engaged, and then other things happen from immorality, children and family connection, it's very difficult to rescue someone from that. Now, can you? Yes. Does the gospel? Yes. Does the word of God, as it transformed the heart? Yes. But he's saying here, watch out that these two appetites of this sensual passion and this immorality doesn't get into your life. Doesn't get into the life of others that you're watching out for too. You're praying for in the body because if it does, it's going to hamstring you. And when you hamstring a horse, they're done. They're done. You just might as well take them out in the back pasture and shoot them. He's saying here, watch out for that. But there's a second thing he says about, about Esau that we're to watch out for, and it's physical appetites. It says in verse 16b, or godless person, in other words, see to it that there be no immoral person or godless person like Esau. What did he do? He sold his birthright for a single meal. That's what's recorded here. And remember the story in Genesis chapter 25. Esau comes in from the field after hunting, famished, starving. His brother Jacob is making stew, red stew. And he says, listen, I'm hungry, man, and uh, uh, give me something to eat. And Jacob, of course, Jacob meaning he's the deceiver, he says, okay, I'll give you some stew. Give me your birthright. So this went on a little bit back and forth. And then finally, Esau says, all right, take my birthright. You can have it. And he gives him the stew, and he eats the stew. And so, see, his thoughts, his aim, his pleasures were only earthbound. They were only earthbound in which he only had a regard for the feeding and unprofitable gratification of the flesh living for myself now so I have as much pleasure 
as possible on this earth. That's what was in his thinking. And so the Bible says to him, listen, stay away from the physical appetites that are only earthbound, that are not profitable for eternal things, that only gratify your flesh for a short period of time and give you a little pleasure, but will never give you eternal happiness. So he gives all that over for the precious privilege of his birthright. His birthright was really important. In fact, his birthright included the headship of his family. It included great property rights. It included the inheritance of the blessing of Abraham and being connected to the bloodline of the Messiah to be the seed of ultimately the Messiah, Jesus Christ, would be born. Man, why would you want to give that away? So what's on his mind? This is what's on his mind. Food, drink, sports, and sleep. It sounds a little bit like the macho man of our day. It sounds like a, it sounds like a commercial. This is, how, this is how people make money on, based on these things. And he's saying here, listen, don't, don't be like them. Don't be like him. For a single meal, he threw away the ancestral ship of the Messiah. And everything that went with that great privilege. And he treated the sacred right birthright as a common thing to be used in a trade of another common thing. That, and that, that would be one meal. So once these rights, according to Scripture, according to this passage, once these rights are lost, they cannot be recovered. No matter what effort is put forth, in other words, the moment he showed contempt for his birthright, the consequences of his bad attitude could not be reversed. In fact, that's exactly what it says in Genesis 25, 34, where this is recorded. Esau despised his birthright. He despised it. When Esau finally, years later, realized what he did, and now Jacob, his brother, has the blessing of Abraham, through his father what does he do when he finally desired to inherit the blessing he was examined found wanting and outright refused see God refused to have him as his heir why because his desire was for sensual passions and for physical appetites. That is it. He cared nothing about God. That's why it uses the word godless. He cared nothing about eternal things. In fact, in verse number 17, look at what happens. It says, finally, when he comes to that place, it says, for you know that even afterwards, when he realized what he did, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. In other words, Esau, it's too late. You rejected it. It's too late. You dropped out. You apostatized. And so Esau became the embittered man in Genesis 27 onward. So if some shrink back and return to some religious or some works-based religious system and leaves Christ, it would be impossible to undo the damage. And so Esau continues as a cautionary example of the impossibility of restoring again to repentance those who have rebelliously sinned against the light. They had revelation of what God was doing and they sinned against it. In fact, in Hebrews 6, in verse number 6, again, that's where the writer of Hebrews warns. He says, and then having fallen away, 
it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they have crucified to themselves the Son of God and put him to an open chain and then have fallen away. In other words, they no longer will hold to the essential aspects of the Christian faith. Dropping out of the race altogether places them from all hope of restoration and salvation. So, the body of believers is called to, listen, watch out that these kind of appetites are not the things that you're pursuing in, the, in this race that we're in, but you are pursuing the Lord by a peaceful and a holy, consistent walk. Your desires for God is growing greater. Your desires for this holy God is growing greater than any appetite that you can have in this physical body and in this world or any other system that could be offered to you to worship some other God you outright reject because you know the truth. And if you know the truth, the truth shall make you free. Now, if you have been around for any period of time, you have come to see that people sometimes come to the Lord and they're excited about the things of God and quit in a short period of time. Their zeal evaporates and they go back and live as they did. They may have been converted to a group. They may have been to some kind of church thing and to the likability of some cool Christians, but they are never converted to Christ. This is not the attitude of those who are converted to Christ. And so this passage of Scripture is giving ample responsibility to the body to seriously watch out for each other. Because you know what? All these things are real. And Satan has a way of employing all his bag, his tools in his bag of tricks. So we're to be watching out, we're to be praying, we're to be diligent, we're to be holding up the weak, we're to be watching out and weeding out the roots of bitterness. We are to be watching out about our own appetites and our own uh, desires that we have that they would be guided and directed to that which is honoring to the Lord and pleasing to the Lord and goes along with what a real believer is in Christ, that we're transformed by the word of God and the renewing of our minds so we find that we know what the acceptable and perfect will of God is. So let's together this morning make sure that this does not happen among us as much as possible and let's take corporate responsibilities seriously. Amen? Let's pray. We do have our Lord's table today. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the word of God. I pray this morning, Lord, in some of the serious things in this passage, that you would make us aware and bring to our attention those things that, are, that we are to be responsible for, especially, Lord, as we mature in Christ, as we run the race a little longer than other people as we realize uh, how you have disciplined us and how you work suffering and trouble and uh, different things into our life not only to correct us concerning our sin but to correct us uh, in our wrong thinking in our wrong understanding of things and Lord even in this case, in our wrong understanding of the church body and what the church body is to do and how the church body is to, is to respond to one another and watch out for one another and hold up each other and pray for one another and encourage each other. I pray that you would help us to be the things that you want, to be, want us to be mentioned in, in this passage so, Lord, we can be diligent in, in being faithful. Uh, to you. And so to, uh, this morning, Lord, enable us to be now, after the Word of God, more aware of it, more learned in what we're to do in our responsibilities, and then, Lord, enable us by your power to do them. We thank you, Lord, for your 
graciousness to us and your kindness to us. Thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness to keep us and hold us up in this race. And I pray, Lord, that all of us would learn to finish well and um, we would encourage others to finish well also. And I pray this all in the precious and great name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.